Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable & Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can call in. If you missed a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations. Uh, our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today, and our microsite at suretytoday.net. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter, which we're starting to do more of. I'll talk about that at the end. If you have any questions or topics for improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt at wcslaw.com. We muted the line during the presentation to avoid background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today I'm going to talk about the surety in the Davis-Bacon Act. Sureties can face Davis-Bacon issues in a variety of ways, and in some circumstances, the surety may receive a claim directly from a laborer on a project under the payment bond. In other cases, the surety may receive a performance bond claim from an obligee who paid a Department of Labor violation notice for the principal's failure to comply with Davis-Bacon. In still other cases, the performing surety may be faced with a set-off of the contract funds based upon a Department of Labor demand to hold the funds under Davis-Bacon. I've dealt with a number of these issues and situations over my 27 years and thought it would be a good topic to discuss today. So in this presentation, we'll explore the Davis-Bacon Act, its history, the, financial, or the federal regulations implementing the act, and some practical pointers for addressing Davis-Bacon Act issues. Finally, we'll, um, we'll discuss the conflict between the surety's right of equitable subrogation and the Davis-Bacon set-off right. Simply summarized, the act requires that laborers and mechanics be paid not less than the prevailing wage as determined by the Secretary of Labor on all federal construction uh, contracts and federally funded construction contracts over $2,000. So let's first look at uh, historically the, the, where the Davis-Bacon Act came from. Uh, the Davis-Bacon Act was enacted into law in 1931. However, the congressional debate on prevailing wage legislation in general began in 1927. The legislative history pinpoints the impetus for what would later become the Davis-Bacon Act as the construction of a Federal Veterans Bureau Hospital in Long Island, New York. Now this was the Congressional District of Representative Robert Bacon. The federal government hospital contract was awarded to a contractor from Alabama who, who promptly brought in quote-unquote cheap labor from the South to build the project, much to the disappointment of the local labor. Representative uh, Bacon described the practice of certain itinerant, irresponsible contractors with itinerant, cheap bootleg labor who've been going around throughout the country picking off a contract here and a contract there. Over the next four years, Representative Bacon introduced a total of 13 bills in Congress attempting to establish some form of regulation over labor on federal projects. The goal of the legislation was to allow local contractors who presumably would utilize local labor to compete on an equal footing by requiring 
the same prevailing local wages be paid on the project, regardless of whether the awardee of the contract was local or from out of town. The economic conditions of the early 30s quickly gave rise to an oversupply of labor and increased the importance of federal building programs as unemployment rose and private construction became increasingly limited during the Great Depression. Accordingly, in 1931, <clears throat> a prevailing wage bill was submitted by Representative Bacon and Senator James Davis of Pennsylvania and was passed by Congress. The Davis-Bacon Act was signed into law by President Herbert Hoover. However, the act as originally passed did not provide for the predetermination of wages and there were no penalty or enforcement provisions to compel compliance. Accordingly, in 1935, the Davis-Bacon Act was amended to provide for predetermination of prevailing wages and for enforcement and penalty provisions. The Davis-Bacon Act was followed by similar legislation in the manufacturing and service industries. And at the present time, there are in excess of 60 federal laws related to Davis-Bacon prevailing wages. Most states have also enacted little Davis-Bacon prevailing wage legislation. However, between 1979 and the present, there have been widespread efforts to repeal prevailing wage statutes, including Davis-Bacon. Nine states have repealed their statutes, and legislation has been introduced in Congress for several years to repeal or limit the Davis-Bacon Act. Such repeal legislation is broadly supported by the U.S. General Accounting Office, Associated Builders and Contractors, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and others, most arguing in favor of repeal, cite inflated costs for government projects, excess administrative costs to the government and contractors, as well as adverse impact on small and minority firms and unskilled laborers. Further, since 1931, a plethora of labor regulatory legislation has been enacted, which has substantially changed the character of the construction industry to the point where it can be argued that the Davis-Bacon protections are no longer needed. Despite these challenges, the Davis-Bacon Act continues to be applicable to hundreds of millions of dollars in public construction projects annually. So let's look at the Act itself. The Davis-Bacon Act is fairly short. It's not, not overly complicated. Uh, initially, the Act establishes that it applies to every contract over $2,000 for construction, alteration, or repair of public buildings or public works to which the federal government is a party or for which federal funding is provided. Pursuant to the Act, all applicable contracts must have a provision stating the minimum wages to be paid. The minimum wages are to be established by the Secretary of Labor based on a determination of the prevailing wages for the classes of labor employed on projects of a similar character in a similar location in which the work is to be performed. The statute further provides that every applicable contract must have a provision requiring payment of laborers and mechanics at least once a week at the wage rate stated in the specifications and that the contractor will post the scale of wages in a prominent place. If a contractor fails to pay the established minimum wages, the statute authorizes the contracting officer to withhold contract funds from the contractor, uh, an amount considered necessary to pay the laborers and mechanics the difference between the prevailing wage rates and the wage actually paid. In addition to the authority to withhold contract funds, the Act also provides for termination of the contractor if the contracting officer finds that any laborer or mechanic employed by the contractor has been paid at rates below the determined prevailing wage rate. If the contractor is terminated, the Act states that, quote, the government may have the work completed by contract or otherwise, and the contractor and the contractor's sureties shall be liable to the government for any excess costs the government incurs, unquote. 
Congress also provided that the Comptroller General shall pay directly to the laborers and mechanics any accrued payments withheld under the contract which are found to be due under the Davis-Bacon Act. If the funds withheld by the government are not sufficient to satisfy the amounts found to be due the laborers or mechanics under the Act, such persons have the same right to bring a civil action and intervene against the contractor and the contractor's sureties as is conferred by law on persons furnishing labor or material. Finally, the Davis-Bacon Act provides that the Comptroller General shall maintain and distribute to all departments of the federal government a list of names of persons found to have violated the Act. The Act states, quote, no contract shall be awarded to persons appearing on the list or to any firm, corporation, partnership, or association in which the persons have an interest until three years have elapsed from the date of publication of the list, unquote. Far from the original Davis-Bacon Act, which had no enforcement provisions, the current law employs a variety of tools from withholding contract funds and termination to debarment to coerce compliance and punish violators. To implement the requirements of the Davis-Bacon Act, the Secretary of Labor has been given the exclusive authority to prescribe regulations. The Secretary of Labor has issued regulations designed to assure coordination of administration and consistency of enforcement of the Davis-Bacon Act and the 60 other related statutes. Those regulations are set forth in Title 29 of the Code of Federal Regulations, or the CFR, sub Subtitle A, Parts 1 through 7. Part 1 provides procedures for predetermining the prevailing wage rate. Part 3 requires submission of the weekly payroll data. Part 5 provides guidelines for application and enforcement. And Part 7 contains procedures governing the practice before the Department of Labor Wage and Appeal Board. So under the framework established, the contracting agency has the initial responsibility to determine if the um, Davis-Bacon Act applies to the project, and if so, to determine the appropriate prevailing wage rate by either referring to an existing general area wage determination from the Department of Labor or by requesting a project-specific wage determination. Prevailing wage is defined as the wage paid to the majority, that's more than 50%, of the laborers or mechanics in the classification on similar projects in the area during the period in question. Any interested person may seek reconsideration of a wage determination or a decision of the administrator regarding application of the determination. If the person is not satisfied with the response, um, there can be a re reconsideration or an appeal. However, the substantive correctness of the administrator's wage rate determination is not subject to judicial review. So if they say that a bricklayer should make $30 an hour, you can't really challenge that, but you can challenge the way they came up with it. Some courts have taken the view that limited judicial review may be had with respect to issues such as denial of due process or the legality of procedures employed by the Department of Labor. Once the prevailing wage has been established for a project, the contractor is required to submit weekly payroll statements containing information regarding the wages paid to its employees. The contract is also required to retain and maintain its payroll records for a period of three years. The contracting agency or the Department of Labor may inspect such records and interview employees to ensure compliance with the Act. Failure to maintain and submit the payroll documentation for inspection and review upon request can result in suspension of further payments on the project and may be grounds for disbarment or debarment, rather. So consistent with the legislative history of the Davis-Bacon Act, courts have uniformly recognized the Act's dual purpose to give 
local laborers and contractors a fair opportunity to participate in building programs when federal money is involved and to protect local wage standards by preventing contractors from basing their bids on wages lower than those in the, in the area. Further, given the nature of the Act, courts generally hold that the Davis-Bacon Act should be liberally construed to effectuate its purpose. Moreover, the protections of the Davis-Bacon Act are not waivable by the contractor, the employee, or even the agency. However, the Secretary of Labor may make variations or tolerances and exemptions from the regulatory requirements. So let's look at some practical uh, ways of addressing these when you get a when you get a uh, notice or determination from the um, Department of Labor that there's been a violation. So as a practical matter, when you're faced with that Davis-Bacon Act claim from the Department of Labor, the surety will typically not be in a position to challenge the underlying wage determination or project classification, as those determinations will generally have been made long before the surety got involved and will not be subject to challenge. However, some effort can be given to determining whether the Department of Labor complied with its own regulations and applicable statutes and whether due process was provided to the principal at the various determination stages. For example, in one case, the Wage Appeals Board ruled that the Secretary of Labor, in connection with his wage determination powers, improperly relied upon a definition, which was in the nature of a rule that had not been formulated following the rulemaking procedures. Aside from the process for setting the wage determination or overall process, there are also a number of other issues that the surety should pay close attention to in order to minimize the size of the Davis-Bacon Act claim. Generally, the slow pace of the Department of Labor investigations and issuance of findings will allow the surety time to get involved with the process and to contest the final decision of the department with respect to Davis-Bacon issues. The surety should take advantage of this opportunity because the Department of Labor is typically more than willing to negotiate a settlement of the issues if the case is not egregious. This is particularly true where the contractor has gone out of business or will not be performing government projects in the future. The most immediate task for the surety is to gather the relevant documents and information regarding the principal's payroll practices. While not always the case, often when a project goes into default, the project documents, especially those on site, seem to disappear and the project personnel move on. Thus, the surety must, ha must move quickly to obtain copies of or get access to the principal's payroll records and job records. These documents will provide the basis for the department's claim and also your defenses. The next task for the surety is to interview the on-site project managers and supervisors to determine what practices were utilized for recording work performed on the project at issue. The surety also needs to obtain a copy of the applicable wage determination and classification, as well as any modifications or corrections. Some issues that can be explored include whether the Department of Labor has correctly identified the work being performed by specific employees or groups of employees. Often the Department of Labor will look at an activity and classify it as all or predominantly all skilled work, which should be paid at a higher wage, when in actuality, a substantial portion of the work was unskilled and should be paid at a lower wage. The surety should also review the work that was being performed to determine if it is covered by the Davis-Bacon Act. For example, was the employee performing construction work on the physical site or dedicated site? Occasionally, the Department of Labor may be over-inclusive in their classification. Attention should also be paid to overtime and fringe benefit payments as these categories are fertile grounds for Davis-Bacon Act claims. 
payments or contributions to qualified benefit plans or programs by the principal may be missed or improperly excluded in the Department of Labor findings. Finally, if the principal is working on several projects, some of which are covered by the Davis-Bacon Act and some of which are not, it is not uncommon for workers to go back and forth between projects. Under such circumstances, a worker's activity attributable to the Davis-Bacon Act project may be miscalculated. Using a comprehensive approach to analyze the Department of Labor's claim can lead to substantial reductions in the claim. All right, so let's take a look at um, the, the conflict that arises between equitable subrogation and the Davis-Bacon Act. Given the broad enforcement rights of the government under the Davis-Bacon Act and the wide-ranging applicability of the Act to federal and federally funded construction projects, inevitably the surety will be confronted with claims from the Department of Labor to remaining contract funds. Surprisingly, however, there's very little case law addressing the competing claims of the surety and the Department of Labor under the Davis-Bacon Act. At the outset, the, thres the threshold question that must be asked is, how should a Davis-Bacon Act claim be categorized? Is it a cost of completion, as some courts have concluded? Is it, is it simply a claim for labor? Is it the government's claim, or is it the laborer's claim? The answers to these questions can impact on the analysis of what priority the claim should be accorded and what rights to equitable subrogation the surety has. Ordinarily, the government's claims are to recover for its own damages or losses or to recover funds that are owed to the government, such as taxes, fines, penalties, what have you. The Davis-Bacon claim is for wages due laborers and mechanics on the project. It is not the government's money, and the money is not owed to the government. While the government is entitled to collect the backed wages, they ultimately must be paid to the laborer or the mechanic. Should the fact that the government is designated as the vehicle through which enforcement is handled be the determinative factor as to the nature of the claim? The government itself has no direct legal liability to the laborer or mechanic. However, the government does have a statutory obligation to enforce the Davis-Bacon Act. Who has the superior interest in the contract funds is the question. The limited number of cases that have addressed the priority of the Davis-Bacon Act claim have not established any clear or bright line rule on this issue, but they are generally not favorable to the surety. So let's look at a couple cases. First, uh, National Fire Insurance Company of Hartford versus Fortune Construction Company. And this is an 11th Circuit case where the court held that a surety satisfying the obligations under its payment bond did not have priority over the obligee's claim based upon the Department of Labor's Davis-Bacon Act claim. In this case, the obligee, the general contractor, paid the Department of Labor's assessment. The court concluded that the Davis-Bacon Act assessment was part of the obligee's reasonable cost of completion of the construction, and the obligee was therefore entitled to apply the remaining contract funds to satisfy that claim ahead of the surety's payment bond subrogation rights. The court observed that the Davis-Bacon Act claim could have been considered as being within the surety's payment bond obligation, However, because of the specific language of the bond, the particular laborers in question would not have been claimants. They were employees of a lower tier sub that did not have a direct contract with the principal as required to be a claimant under the bond. Regardless of the analytical approach, in the context of a surety claiming equitable subrogation rights through its satisfaction of payment bond obligations only, under traditional subrogation law, the surety will not be in a position to assert a priority claim to the remaining contract balances ahead of the Davis-Bacon Act claim. The obligee will generally always have the superior right to set off if the claim is treated 
um, as the government and to complete the project with the remaining funds, which will take priority over the surety claiming through the principal and or its laborers. Of course, when the surety performs the obligations under the performance bond, it becomes equally subrogated to the right of the obligee. In Westchester Fire Insurance Company versus United States, the Court of Federal Claims addressed the claims of, a, of the surety to contract funds that had been withheld by the Coast Guard at the direction of the Department of Labor to satisfy Davis-Bacon Act violations. The Westchester Court took the view that once the funds were directed to be withheld by the Department of Labor under the Davis-Bacon Act, the funds were no longer available to the Coast Guard, to the surety, or the contractor to complete work on the project. The court stated that the rights of the Department of Labor and the funds were superior to the Coast Guard, the contractor, and the surety, and it was therefore immaterial whether the surety was subrogated to the rights of the obligee or the contractor. However, the authority cited by the court does not support the court's conclusion. It relied on a, on a case that was a bank trying to seek funds which wouldn't have subrogation rights and on, a, on another case that also didn't involve um, the right of subrogation. The court in Westchester also rhetorically noted its belief that the surety would be responsible for satisfying the unpaid laborers even if the money was released to the surety instead of being paid to the Department of Labor. Finally, the court brushed aside the case law holding that the performance bond surety had superior rights to contract funds over the government, stating that tax claims of the contractor were not directly, directly related to the project, like the claims of unpaid laborers for work on the project. The court noted the government's claim to the withheld funds was directly connected to the contract, and the Department of Labor's claim was not on its own behalf, but on behalf of the laborers. The Westchester Court does not discuss why the Department of Labor's claim on behalf of labor should receive any greater priority than claims of laborers generally. As previously noted, the Davis-Bacon Act does not give laborers a direct legal claim against the government. While it is true that the Davis-Bacon Act entitles the government to withhold funds, the same is true of other collection and enforcement statutes, yet those claims are inferior to the performing surety. Under subrogation law, the surety is entitled to stand in the shoes of the government and to use the remaining contract funds to complete the project. To say that the set-off right of the government renders those funds unavailable even to the government and not part of the project ignores the nature of set-off as described in the Muncie Trust case. The Davis-Bacon Act provides that there may be, quote-unquote may, be withheld from the contractor so much of crude payments as the contracting officer considers necessary. The use of the word may indicates discretion with respect to whether funds will be withheld at all. Discretion is also given to the contracting officer under the Act to withhold such amounts deemed necessary. Further, the funds are to be withheld from the contractor, not removed from the project for all purposes and beyond reach of even the government to complete the project or the subrogated surety. As we all know, upon default of the contractor, it can be argued that the funds under the contract are no longer due the contractor at all but are for the completion of the project and thus should not be subject to withholding for Davis-Bacon claims. The fact that the claim of the laborers directly relates to the project is no different than the government's set-off rights which arise directly out of the contract, such as liquidated damages or back charges, delay claims, and to which the performing surety becomes subrogated. Finally, the Westchester, uh, Westchester Court's belief that the surety would be required to pay the funds to the laborers if the funds were given to the surety, ignores the various defenses that the surety may have to the claims of the laborers. 
So let's look at another case, uh, Liberty Mutual Insurance Company, and this is a Department of Labor uh, case. The Department of Labor Board of Contract Appeals held that the Department of Labor's Davis-Bacon Act claim was superior to the takeover surety's claim for contract funds. The contractor was terminated for default, and the surety entered into a takeover agreement with the Coast Guard to complete the project. Subsequently, the Department of Labor, pursuant to an investigation, determined that the contractor had underpaid its workers in violation of the Davis-Bacon Act. The surety did not dispute the findings of the Department of Labor. No payment bond claims were submitted to the surety by the principal's employees, and the Miller Act limitations for the employees' claims had expired. The Department of Labor instructed the Coast Guard to withhold the contract funds for the Davis-Bacon claim, which the Coast Guard did, and the remaining balance of the funds, less the withheld funds, was paid to the surety upon completion. The Labor Board of Contract Appeals decided that the surety did not have priority to the funds withheld because the surety did not pay the laborers who had been underpaid by the principal. The board concluded that a surety's right to subrogation is dependent on its payment of debts left unpaid by the contractor. The board's position is illusory and incorrect. Under the board's theory, if the surety wants to acquire a priority position, the surety must pay the laborers. But when the laborers are paid, there will be no need for the priority position. The board's decision also places requirements on a Miller Act surety that are contrary to the Miller Act, i.e., payment of claims that have not been asserted against the bond and which are barred by limitations. Thus, under the Labor Board's approach, in order to obtain subrogation rights and priority, the surety must disregard the requirements of its bond and the Miller Act. The Davis-Bacon Act does not require such a result, nor does the law of equitable subrogation. Further, the Board ignores the fact that the surety, by performing under the performance bond, is also entitled to be subrogated to the rights of the government, and the government is not required to satisfy claims of laborers to exercise its set-off rights or to utilize the contract funds to complete the project. There are very few cases addressing the issue of priority rights of the surety in the context of a Davis-Bacon Act claim, and the cases that do exist do not provide favorable treatment of the issue. Accordingly, the surety must be aware when it seeks to recover contract funds on a project subject to the Davis-Bacon Act that the Department of Labor may be able to assert a claim that could be afforded a superior priority right to those funds. Okay, so that's all I have for that. So let me talk about um, what we've got before I open up the line for any questions. I wanted to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, July 9th at uh, 12.30 Eastern Time, of course and I will present on the topic of the surety's use of drones. And this was a topic of recently, uh, last month, of the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association. I thought it was very interesting. But in order to be able to do this, we have to do it in a different format. So this will be a special presentation because it will be a webinar, and it will be held in conjunction with the Guardian Group. And I'll get you more details um, shortly about how we're going to put all that together and how you, um, you know, how you get in. It's probably going to be with GoToWebinar, which is a service that we use here. And, um, you know, you just, you just dial in on, through your computer and you'll be able to see the PowerPoint presentation and hear about how sureties can use drones uh, on construction projects. So upcoming events in the surety industry. The um, Chicago Surety Claims Annual Golf Outing will be June 14th. The Surety Claims Institute will hold its annual meeting June 20th through the 22nd at Beaver Creek, Colorado. Uh, one thing I wanted to announce is we will be starting a new service to surety claims handlers called Surety Today Case Notes. 
where we will from time to time discuss a recent case that relates to surety claims handling issues in a short, easy to read way. Typically, the cases will address issues that relate to a past Surety Today presentation. And these case notes will be posted on LinkedIn and Twitter, so be sure to connect with or follow us on the social media sites and you'll be able to see those, um, those case notes. We're not going to bombard everybody with email um, you know, on these, but if, if people have an interest, we can certainly uh, switch it out to email too. So let me uh, unmute the line here. and ask if anybody has any questions. I, this is Kim Moore. I have a quick question. Um, the cases that you read or the, uh, the different issues that you've seen, are they the funds that, um, would they be project funds? Or have you ever seen where there are workers that were the DOL or the, they're trying to attach funds for, that are unrelated to the the employees or the workers? No. The, so these, cases, yeah, these cases all dealt with, with situations where the contract funds were, were, some of them were withheld or segregated based on the Department of Labor's demand uh, because of a Davis-Bacon violation. I've never seen, I haven't seen the government try to, to to go from one project to a different project and try to attach funds that way, I haven't seen that, and I don't think the I don't think the Davis-Bacon Act would support that. It really talks about withholding funds, you know, in that project on that on that um, in that wage violation, and so I don't think it would be something that they could, uh, you know, take to a different project. And also, the way it's set up is if there's not enough funds, if they didn't withhold enough funds in that project then the individual laborers are left to their own devices. So there's no treatment for, you know, for going to another project and taking funds. Okay, because we've had contractors who are not contractors, owners or GCs who try to say, well, we're not going to pay the contract down because we want to make sure that the DOL doesn't have any claims and we want to make sure they sign off. Um, yeah, well, you know, no and that's to get that specific project. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point, though. See, that's not the government. If you're dealing with a GC now as the obligee, they have and they have rights of set off. They may they may try to assert that, hey, I, you know, I, I had a loss over on this job because of the because of a Davis Bacon Act violation, and I want to set that off against this other job over here where there's funds, and that's a different that's a different issue. Still, the surety, as the completing surety. Its subrogation rights would defeat, and the, and the obligee would not have the right to set off those funds. So, you know, there's there's it's a different analysis when when you're dealing with the lower tier obligee as opposed to the government. Right, and I'm I'm even talking in cases where they don't have another project. They just randomly, I think they just don't want to pay. So they're just right. saying, well, we need we need a, a full release that they you know that this contractor has no other that the DOL or whomever is not going to come after them or the unions aren't going to come after them. Right, right. For unrelated projects. So, okay, thanks. Anybody else? All right, well, I appreciate everybody for calling in and uh, hope to speak to you all next month on the webinar. Thanks. Thanks. Thank right. you. Great job. Thanks. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.